Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, let's not head down that country because that'll be 15 minutes on the mic how much I dislike the song Sweet Home Alabama, which Mick defends. That's why you sound like Mick. That's how long the song is, too, I think. <laughs> Have you ever heard the Kid Rock version? No. Oh, it's even worse. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, June 22nd, starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back repeat guest of the Ben Jarofsky show. He's a longtime speechwriter and also a longtime musician. Ben welcomes Peter Cunningham. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and uh, anything else you're looking for, it's all right there at ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more from Ben Jarofsky, if you're looking for more content, it's all right there, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-B is in victory. SKY. Yeah. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this political Chicago, and here's why. Because Chicago's a political city, ladies and gentlemen. It's all about politics in the city of Chicago. And I'm always amused and when people use politics uh, in a derogatory way in the city of Chicago. This is on my mind because there were three separate articles I read in my beloved Bright One, which I want to show my distinguished guest. He thinks I'm kidding. My distinguished guest is uh, a baby boomer, but he like probably reads his uh, news uh, on a phone. So distinguished guest, Exhibit A, an actual newspaper. Uh, distinguished guest is Peter Cunningham. And um, so the Sun-Times came today, and there were three articles I saw about local issues facing the people of the city of Chicago, where the critics of whatever this... Our, the issue was or where the city is heading, used the word politics as though it is a derogatory. I had a smile, man. It's like this is a political decision. This is politics. Uh, one issue uh, had to do with the search for a new police chief. Uh, apparently, 19 aldermen weighed in with a letter to the head of the search committee. Anthony Driver, who's looking for uh, three names to submit to Mayor Brandon Johnson so that he could choose one. Uh, and so 19 aldermen weighed in that, with their candidate. Uh, and so I think it was Joe Ferguson, former inspector general, denounced that as a political machinations, political politics. Uh, and then there was another article where I'm doing this off the top. Oh, urban prep, supporters of urban prep, a charter school. Uh, that's on the ropes here in uh, the city of Chicago because of allegations of malfeasance uh, on the part of the people who run it. Uh, allegations, I should say. Uh, so their supporters came together and they had a press conference uh, and they denounced it as a political move. It's politics. This is what's at play. Politics. Uh, then there was a third issue, a story about a TIF deal. 
Apparently, the city of Chicago, Brandon Johnson, is getting ready uh, to extend TIF. We're kind of around in the neck of the woods where uh, my distinguished guest, Peter Cunningham, lives. The old Fullerton, uh, Milwaukee TIF, which I know so much about because I wrote about it back in the day. And they want to extend its life, I think, three years so they can um, help finance, subsidize, underwrite the rehab of the Congress Theater. An old rock and roll palace I saw. Um, who did I see there? Uh, Bootsy Collins, one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen. Bootsy Collins at the Congress Theater. <laughs> God, they should they should save that theater just because Bootsy Collins played there. Am I humble? Uh, and uh, I also saw the meters there. So I've seen some good shows at the old Congress Theater. Anyway, uh, and in that case, uh, critics are denouncing it as politics. And, you know, folks, d- depending on what your position is on all these issues, we could I'll, probably Peter and I will probably have a conversation, maybe about all three of these issues. I don't know. Wide ranging conversations when Peter Cunningham comes on the show. But I just want to address the issue of politics. It's used so <laughs> frequently by people who are denouncing whatever it is they are objecting to as though it's a dirty word. I'm like, we live in a democracy, ladies and gentlemen. We live in a political system. Politics is infused in the lifeblood of Chicago. Why is that a dirty word? Like, why is the concept that one side would try to use whatever influence it has on the people that make the decisions automatically a bad thing? Because the other side's going to do the same. Why is one thing politics and the other thing good planning? <laughs> I'm like, you guys seem to think that there's like ever been a moment in the city of Chicago where the people who run this city are like researchers in a laboratory just searching for the truth and getting all the different relevant information that they need that they so they could pursue an end that would be just objectively measurably the best decision to make that has never happened in the city of chicago for as long as i've been living here and i've been living here since 1981 politics is part of the process i I don't know why (laughs) i've been i've been meaning to say that have this riff for a while and now it's just something about peter cunningham be coming back to the show that i just it seemed Pouring out because Peter Cunningham, good friend of this show, uh, has been involved with the political process in the city of Chicago for many, many years, was a speechwriter for Mayor Daly, an advisor to Arnie Duncan and at least a kitchen. Isn't that what they call a kitchen advisor to Rahm Emanuel? Like didn't work for him, but he was always there uh, to take a phone call or a text or an email and give him his advice. And I think we could throw Barack Obama in there, may have listened to Peter Cunningham's advice. So I do not understand why it's a disparaging word to say politics. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, well, this is a political reason, you know, as opposed to what? Like, as opposed to what? Human beings having their biases and prejudices? You know, you think there's ever been a system in Chicago government where we eliminated bias and prejudice from the discussion and debate? I wish we had that system. But no, politics, I don't know why. I, I'll go a step further. One of the things uh, that discourages me about the future of democracy is the low voter turnout. And I think part of the reason is that the system itself is given a bad name because the notion that politics is bad 
would like discourage somebody. Oh, that's political. I've heard that said so many times. Oh, that was a political. That's political. Like, what do you even mean? Do you even know what you mean when you say it? I don't think so. Well, how is it the other person is political and you're not? Why is it that somehow or other your position is the one that's pure and true and the other one is the one that's biased? It's all political. We all have a political agenda. I have a political agenda. Always have. I have a worldview. I'm an old lefty, New Deal Democrat, stuck in this neoliberal time. I'm out of time, Peter Cunningham, to quote your, one of your favorite rock and roll bands, the Rolling Stones. Anyway, that's thoughts on my mind. Peter Cunningham, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here, Ben, and nice to hear your little rant about politics. I uh, happen to agree that politics is a noble profession, uh, a noble undertaking. Uh, I think the reason why people like to toss the term around in disparagingly is because they like to pretend that their mission is above politics, <laughs> that they are fighting for kids or they are, you know, standing up for working families or they are you know, protecting some other aggrieved class, whereas their opponents are merely politicians. Um, I've said for some time, and I'm not the first person to say it, so I'm not taking any credit for it, that um, culture drives politics and politics drives policy. Policy is way downstream, and the culture is uh, way upstream, and the Republicans have certainly figured this out and learned how to capitalize on it much better than us hapless Democrats, um, uh, you know, and the culture drives the politics and the politics drives the policy. And all these people, we tend to spend all of our time debating policy and the other guys spend all their time stoking culture wars. And, you know, that's why we sometimes lose in these battles. All right. I'm going to have you follow up on that. I'm just going to push back a little bit uh, your assessment uh, of my opening rant. I wouldn't call it a rant. I would call it brilliant brilliantly reasoned rational argument that's how i would phrase it uh but uh anyway back to it uh your my reasoned argument is your rant your no I, I i use that term in uh in uh, as a compliment thank you it was a uh, brilliant rant thank you uh, oh brilliant rant uh this is a rant. Did you hear the rant i did about jason tatum sometime that is a rant uh, but i won't go basketball all right just Go back and uh, flesh out what you just said. I wrote it down. I, I want to make sure I got it right. Uh, culture drives politics and politics drives policy. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Explain that. Go in a little uh, more detail about that. Well, you know, you look at the gun issue, right? We spend a lot of time uh, on the um, progressive side of the fence, liberal side of the fence, democratic side of the fence, um, uh, talking about gun safety. We think it's common sense. A lot of gun owners agree with us that it's common sense. Um, but when you try and make that argument based on data and common sense, and the other guys are making the argument saying you're invading our lifestyle, you're challenging our lifestyle, you're, you're going to take away our guns, you're going to get in between me and my son who I'm teaching to hunt and to do all these things, none of which is true, but it's enough to get people to say, forget it, I'm against it. Even people who are for it say, forget it, I won't support any gun safety laws. So that's an example where a culture war stands in the way of a reasonable uh, policy. Abortion is another good example, right? Um, 
almost everybody in America agrees that there should be exceptions um, for things like rape and uh, medical, you know, to save the life of the mother. But then you have people on the other side who are saying, no, no exceptions, no exceptions. So they're not using reason. They're just appealing to culture. They're claiming this is religious. This is everything, even though all kinds of religious people support a woman's right to choose. So, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways, policy guys have a butter knife and culture guys have submachine guns and they're standing against each other trying to have, you know, a debate and uh, culture to use a really bad pun Trump's policy. <laughs> uh, wow. We're um, I kind of want to finish this before we, uh, this this is classic. I wasn't planning to have this particular conversation at all with Peter Cunningham. I have a whole list of things I want to talk about, specific stuff happening in Chicago. But let's just finish this. Okay. So, how, I mean, how can, if you're going into a political argument or debate with a butter knife and the other guy has a submarine gun, to use uh, uh, your analogy, your metaphor, uh, how can you possibly win in such an, in such an environment? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes we do win because we have the emotional uh, uh, strength. We have the emotion with us. You know, when you look at gun victims and you line up enough of them, people start to say, uh, this really matters. I saw the other day a far right wing Republican who had a trans child. And because he had a trans child, he was actually modifying his position so once it got personal he finally woke up <laughs> and realized that you know that these are human beings and they deserve protection and they deserve rights and that his party and his position was actually uh, uh, a threat to his own child and so i think it, it, you know you can sometimes counter it with the emotional appeal uh, you can sometimes use reason and you can sometimes uh, use what we often have, which is the majority. You know, we have a majority in certain places in the country and, you know, we win elections sometimes. Sometimes we do win and you have the ability to change things like right here in Chicago. Right. We have uh, we have a new mayor and he's he's got an, an, an agenda and it's. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he's got his, his views and he, 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 he won. I mean, I give him credit because he won explicitly promising to do things that everybody, you know, claimed were politically toxic. Like he was explicitly promising to raise taxes. Of course, he was targeting the wealthy with his taxes. And, you know, that's a politically um, uh, appealing position. Uh, but nevertheless, he was explicitly promising to raise taxes and he was explicitly not promising to fill all these vacancies in the police department. He never explicitly promised that. Now, I, uh, I tweeted about this earlier today. This is kind of a stupid debate because he just spoke at a police graduation. He's not really against recruiting more police. He's not really against hiring more police, but he's, you know, he's not buying into this false argument that somehow if you don't commit to, to hiring, filling every single vacancy, then you're anti-police. He's basically forcing us to think differently about the, about the about the whole issue of public safety, uh, while at the same time continuing to hire police. So it's 
it's, it's just one of those dumb arguments that's percolating here in Chicago. That happens every once in a while, Ben. <laughs> uh, yeah, like every day. Um, all right. Uh, well, now we, you shifted it to local. Uh, so let's stay local. Uh, I guess we'll start with Brandon Johnson, the election, get that out of the way first, although the police one is very inviting because just so folks know, uh, Peter's been coming on this show since I had a podcast, uh, which was 2019 for four years, talking about rethinking policing. That's where he comes from. And uh, so in many ways, I would have thought you would have been a, a fervent supporter of Brandon Johnson because he was the one candidate uh, in the runoff anyway, who came closest uh, to articulating the views that you have articulated on this show repeatedly uh, for four years. We have to rethink policing. We cannot just follow the same path. It hasn't worked. Just this, we have to even think, rethink our notion of how many police do we need? This is straight up Peter Cunningham stuff. How much police, how many police officers do we need? Let's have a, let's have, let's, let's try to have a reasonable discussion about that void from politics. If we can tie it all together. Right. And what, what, what role should they play? I mean, should they continue to be responding to all kinds of non-criminal things like noise complaints or something, or, you know, mental health calls, um, traffic accidents, or could we, have civilians respond to more of those things so that police were freed up. You know, the 11,700 that we have right now were freed up to, uh, you know, focus on violent crime. The one thing only police can do. Um, and that's really what I've been saying all along. Uh, and uh, so therefore I presume, uh, or I would presume that in the April runoff, you voted for Brandon Johnson because he came closest uh, to articulating uh, your position on this. Am I correct? You voted for Brandon Johnson? Uh, I did not in the general, in the runoff, no. Human beings are not perfect individuals, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes they're inconsistent. Sometimes they believe one thing and do another thing. We are now going to use Peter Cunningham as a demonstration of this. Go ahead. Explain the inconsistency between voting for a man uh, who says we should hire more police and vote and not voting for the man who's closest to your worldview. Take it away. Well, Ben, there is more than one issue, right? There's education okay i actually had a lot of concerns about brandon's uh views on education and his um his pedigree shall i say uh you know uh as you know i worked for arnie arnie inherited the uh job from of ceo of chicago public schools from paul i did a little work for paul and i've known him for a very long time uh and uh my my views on education were closer to his. So that's one issue. The bigger issue that I was worried about was finances. We're going to hit a, um, a cliff soon when all the federal money runs out. And I was convinced that Paul would do a better job of negotiating, of, of managing that coming crisis. Now, we now have Brandon as mayor. I'm hopeful that he will do a good job too. And I'll give him any kind of support he wants. Uh, but that's a big problem. It's going to affect the schools. It's going to affect uh, public safety. It's going to affect uh, the entire city budget. Uh, it's going to affect the state budget. So we are going to hit a fiscal cliff, 
And we're going to have to be really creative about how to solve that. And meanwhile, he's trying to raise other taxes for other things, many of which I support. So I think he's got a big, big, big hill ahead. All right. Well, uh, I'll avoid relitigating the uh, April election, put it in the rearview mirror. Paul Vallis lost, thankfully, and uh, the city is moving on. Uh, it would have been a, oh my goodness, a MAGA man at City Hall. Wow. That would have been a huge win for MAGA, by the way. I think you'll agree with me. On I don't agree with you on that. I don't think he's MAGA. He's a lifelong Democrat, but yes, he's more, Except much more, much more conservative than, than Brandon, and more conservative than me. So uh, he was a not MAGA though. MAGA is like on another category. Well, I, the reason I call him, I sometimes I call him MAGA sympathizer uh, uh, because uh, he plays footsie with the MAGAites, and he went on the Dan Prof show. He subbed for Dan Prof. Yes, in, in that's all. Point. That's all true. And, and uh, he went to Awake Illinois. Uh, let's not forget that. Uh, listen, I always say this about Paul Vallis. He's a lifelong Democrat except for that part of his life when he wasn't a Democrat. I saw that line. Yeah. Uh, I used it many times. <laughs> right. It reminds me of the, right. this is the other, the follow-up line. Right. The kid right. I coached who said, coach, I got straight A's. This Look, I was, in, I was a except for the B, I got right. in English. The C, I got in history. And the D, I got in math. Other than that, straight A's. Go ahead. Look, I was a lifelong Knicks fan until Michael Jordan. And I moved to Chicago. And Michael Jordan came along. And then I was a Bulls fan. And I especially enjoyed the fact that I could call back to my brothers and cousins and talk to them about basketball now. So and then had, you are not, by definition, a lifelong Knicks fan. I, am, I have migrated to the Bulls. Okay, so you're not a lifelong. So if you were running for office in New York City, you would not say, and it would not be truthful to say, I, Peter Cunningham, am a lifelong Knicks fan. I could tell you about Earl Monroe back in 1972. You would not say that because that that would not be true because there was a part of your life when you were not a Knicks fan, correct? Fair fair enough, fair enough. So, but I don't think there's any proof that Paul was ever a Republican Member of the Republican Party. I know. Well, he said he was thinking about running as a Republican once, right? Well, he said said? that he was no longer a Democrat. And so uh, did he mean he wasn't a registered Democrat or did he mean he didn't agree with the Democratic Party? Now you're asking me to crawl into the brain of Paul Vallis and do it. Was he using a large D or a small D? <laughs> That's the difference. Well, we know he's he's never been a small D Democrat ever. <laughs> More like a, a capital A autocrat. Uh, look, everybody right. changes. You know, look at look at charter schools. Okay, who th- who who came up with the idea for charter schools? This is a quiz, Ben. Okay, uh, I can do this. Uh, well, first of all, I do not believe this man actually came up with the, the literal idea for a charter school, but he was an early proponent of it. And now, don't tell me this. Uh, I remembering everything. He was the head of the teachers union in New York City. Israel. No. Uh, what was his name? Albert Shanker. Uh, Albert Shanker. Yes. Albert Shanker. And he's mentioned as a punchline in a Woody Allen movie. One of Peter Cunningham's favorite movies. Sleeper. <laughs> Uh, you can yeah. look it up, ladies and gentlemen. How did I yeah. forget his first name? Uh, I mean, I mean, in the early days, a lot of unions started charter schools. It was it was seen as a progressive idea by some, and then you know, then it was seen as sort of something that was hijacked by sort of the right wing and turned into a something else. Uh, I'm on the board of a charter school in Chicago. It has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with education. 
about a Montessori charter school. It's a single charter school. It's a wonderful school. And it's in the middle of Englewood. And, you know, when I look at that school, I think this has nothing to do with the national education debate about choice. This is about a great school serving a great population. It's full, by the way. It's in the middle of a radically depopulated community, and it's full because they're doing something right. They're really responding to kids. So so here's okay i'll respond to that since you raised this uh i agree there are individual charter schools that are about nothing other than uh giving the best possible education they can to the students who enroll there and they treat their teachers and employees humanely and fairly and don't expect them to work uh at uh horrific wages and conditions i agree there are individual charter schools uh, like that but just as i began with my opening statement you cannot divorce politics from charter schools as a whole because charter schools have become a tool by which the republican party is trying to maintain its control over legislatures on the local level and over congressional districts and over uh, the White House ultimately by pounding the teachers union and turning the teachers union into enemies, you weaken the Democratic Party and you make it easier for Republicans to win. You're a political strategist. You absolutely have to agree to this. Go I ahead. do agree with that. But let me just make one other point about them and then we can switch to other issues. <laughs> Who do they mostly serve? They mostly serve low income kids of color nationally and that's especially true right here in Chicago. Those are Democratic constituencies who are served by many of these charter schools. So I just think we should keep that in mind, like, you know, to be to to go back to the idea earlier of who's really standing up for the kids in this situation. There are kids who are well served by them. That doesn't mean they're all good. And that doesn't mean some of them aren't tools of oppression and some, some of them aren't being politicized to to undermine unions. That's all true also. And I, that's, just, I just think that the challenge for us on this issue and on almost any issue is to try and maintain the good side of it and try and minimize the unintended negative consequences of it. Because every policy has negatives. Every single policy has some negatives. And, uh, you know, the question is, does it have more positives than negatives? Absolutely. And that's why I think you'll agree with me with what I'm about to say. Uh, they do, uh, in many cases, serve uh, or black communities. And so that's why I know you will join me when I say that every single teacher at a charter school should make as much as his or her counterpart in the public school, because you should never make teaching in a poor black community, a lesser paying job than teaching in a, a non-poor black community, because that's essentially how our government, how our system demonstrates uh, its appreciation for the job right we the reality is the reality is that teachers teaching in inner cities make less than money than teachers teaching in lily white suburbs wealthy suburbs right absolutely we got to raise even, that even though they're both even though they're both you know unionized so you're going to join me in with a clarion call for all the power raise teacher salaries yes raise across the board it. all right yeah i'm all see, for we it. see eye to eye okay <laughs> uh i'm 100 it's paying teachers more <laughs> definitely I, I'm for paying lots of public servants more. You know, I think that I'm also for holding public servants accountable, all of them, not just teachers or cops or anybody, but 
politicians, as a matter of fact. How about some accountability for them, then? Yes. We, well, we have elections uh, every four We years. have elections. That's yes. one, okay, one that's... tool. <laughs> we we have, do have elections. We, we uh, have criminal courts. Yes, we have criminal courts, uh, although they apparently don't apply to Republican candidates. because We have the court of public opinion. Yes. Right? And like we have podcasters like you holding them accountable every day. Thank God for that here in America. Yes. But did you hear what I was about to say? No. Courts. Uh, criminal courts, but apparently they don't apply to Republican politicians like they do to Democratic politicians. Uh, in Cook County, we have a long history of prosecuting uh, Democratic politicians who've run uh, follow the law, but apparently the Republican Party is dedicated to the notion that Donald Trump is above being prosecuted for violating the law. So it's a- I think George, George Ryan might disagree with you. Yeah, here in Illinois. <laughs> and they went after Ryan. That's it. Bridge drawn up. All right. Uh, right. Let's talk. Let's let's talk about the police chief story. Uh, This kind of ties a lot of things together. And uh, we have a vacancy uh, for uh, the permanent position. There's Mm an interim uh, that uh, is agreed to serve until Brandon Johnson selects us permanent. Your general thoughts about the process Chicago has for selecting a police chief. Well, you know, it's complicated. Um, I think that uh, uh, obviously giving citizens a voice is a good thing. Uh, But ultimately, the mayor is accountable and he's going to have to live with that choice. And so if the process doesn't yield candidates he likes, then I think it's, you know, we should be rethinking it. Um, I mean, he's the mayor. He was elected. uh, And. you know, one way or another, they, they're going to have to be mindful of what he has, uh, of, of his, his vision of public safety and what he has uh, was elected on. Uh, and he does have a very explicit vision of public safety. And uh, I, I don't know the individual, the police individual that they were referring to. I think his name is McDermott. Yes. Uh, I don't personally know him and I don't know, you know his views on policing. So I can't speak to that, but my sense is that it, it came from sort of the wing of the uh, city council. That's kind of like, you know, the law and order old school type, as opposed to the holistic treat crime as a public health issue, treat gun violence as a public health issue. And if that's the case, then, you know, they shouldn't be meddling in my opinion, you know, let the process play out. You know, we, we came up with a process. We all agreed on it, whether, whether you like it or not, we all agreed on it or it was, Put it to how, how was that created? State law or city ordinance? The um, the, the commission. Uh, God, now you're asking me to go back in time. I'm not going to say the what I think is the answer because if I'm wrong, it'll mislead somebody. Right, well, either way, either, either way. way, yeah. It, it, it happened. We agreed on the process. So let the process play out. So the first thing that it, it's like you, you don't like it now because you don't you didn't get the answer you wanted, but you agreed on the process. It's kind of like the push for an elected school board. Now you know. I, w- I wasn't in favor of the elected school board, but now we have one. So now we are all, all going to either get involved, push candidates, do things we want to do. Now, we may end up electing candidates who the people who won the elected school board don't like. Right. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> like true. they may be even saying to themselves right now, we shouldn't have done this because we'd have Brandon now being able to pick the school board as long as yeah. we control the mayor's office. So. Yeah. Like you didn't have a push for an elected school board in New York because they had a, a mayor under de Blasio who they felt was 
more aligned with, you know, with teachers unions and with the, you know, with the folks who were uh, uh, frustrated, shall we say, by the education reform movement. And I don't mean to single out the teachers union. No, they, 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 they have their positions and they've collaborated with, you know, the reform movement plenty of times. And then sometimes they're on the other side. So I'm not, I'm not singling them out as anything. I'm just saying we have a process here. And I don't know if any of those aldermen who wanted to put that name forward supported the process. I'll bet some of them did. And now suddenly they're saying, but you're not giving this guy a chance. Well, that's not their job to meddle. They, they'll uh, have an opportunity. I think they, they get to approve the, the yes. final choice by Brandon, right? By yeah. the mayor, I should say. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I've said this before, Peter's on the show. Uh, a, a classic memory of mine with Peter Cunningham is driving in his car. He was driving in pouring rain down Lakeshore Drive, going to an interview that he set up uh, for me to do with a principal uh, at a school. I can't remember which school it was. Doesn't really matter. Uh, and uh, a, <laughs> a passionate debate. Borderlining an argument erupted over an elected school board. I was after a while, I was worried that Peter might drive off the road. Uh, <laughs> he was so enraged. Of course, I was pro elected school board and he was against at the time. But your point's well taken that I may be um, cursing <laughs> that institution uh, right. down the road. Somewhere. Maybe Paul, maybe Paul's going to run. <laughs> yeah, maybe Paul. No, I think, I think. Uh, Paul has uh, Paul's working for um, that wet right wing outfit now. I forget the yeah, name. The Illinois, Illinois Policy Institute. Yeah. Institute yeah. So he's got his he's got his eyes on a bigger MAGA prize. All right, what would you like to see? I mean, okay, so just so this Who article would I like that to see as, as as police superintendent. Well, not. I mean, you may have a candidate of mine, which you're free, of course, to mention. But I'm talking about in terms of just sort of qualities. This article, as you you pointed out, where the uh, I think it was Alderman Matt O'Shea was one of the aldermen who uh, was upset that uh, they don't think that Brian McDermott is is being considered for the final three spots that get offered. Mm -hmm. And it's not even clear that he won't be considered. So they right. really are just like trying to push their candidate right. out there and put political pressure uh, on the commission to add his name to the list. So clearly that's what they're doing. They're applying the pressure they can to get him to be one of the three. Yeah. Um, so what type of candidate, uh, would you like to see on this list? What, what do you think are the the ingredients that would make for a good police chief? Well, I should start by saying that I do a lot of work for Chicago Cred, which is a violence prevention organization founded by Ernie Duncan. And we believe that policing alone is not going to solve gun violence. We believe that, that um, uh, community violence intervention organizations like Cred and like Ch Ready Chicago and like the Com Communities Partnering for Peace are, are essential. So I would like to see a, a police officer who believes in that, who welcomes the um, welcomes the help from people. Um, I'd like to see one. I, I think wh whoever is the next police chief has an existential challenge to rebuild morale. Uh, morale is very down for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't need to list them all. Uh, but, you know, he's going to have to do that. He or she, I should say, will have to do that. And obviously he or she's going to have to keep us safe. And one of the big raps on Chicago Police Department is that they don't seem to be as targeted in their resources and as data-driven 
as they could be. I mean, we have a lot of data. We know exactly where shootings happen. Every single one of them is mapped, and we, we know the date, the time, you know, we know the time of day. And there have been numerous articles pointing out that, that you know, they don't deploy police in the neighborhoods where they're needed most at the times when they're needed most. We have a lot of factors that result in maybe a lot of rookies doing the midnight shift in, you know, high crime neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, whether it's the, the police contract or just, just, you know, just the way they deploy them. Um, so, so I think you, you need a police chief who's going to embrace reform that's mandated now by the consent decree. You need one who can rebuild morale and you need one who realizes uh, that police can't do it alone and who welcomes the help, not only from violence prevention groups, but from the business community, from, you know, uh, the research community, the academia, and, and just from people themselves. And so I don't know whether, you know, McDermott is not on the list because maybe he's an old school guy or something who's like just, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the guy, you know, so, but... I think it you don't even know that he's not on the list. I don't even know that he's not on the list. Uh, you know, did, yeah, this is a, right. a what do they call it? a preemptive strike? Isn't that what they call it in politics? I you, guess so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I mean, you know, he may be a terrific guy. I, I, I've met some, you know, some of the police leaders uh, and they're all impressive. I mean, to rise to the top of that organization, you know, it is you have to be an impressive guy. Uh, person, I should say. Mm-hmm. Forgive me. You have to be an impressive thinker and you know the whole profession i think is in something of a crisis and that's not me speaking people like charlie beck will tell you that you know in fact he wrote that in an op-ed in the tribune a few months ago that you know the whole profession is in crisis their trust is low uh the interest in doing the job is low a lot of guys are retiring and uh you know i, I think the, the 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 solution to getting better has to start by admitting you have a problem and if for all I know, you know, anybody who sit, who comes to that interview process and says everything's fine, just let us do our job, probably isn't going to, you know, going to advance because that's not how Mayor Brent Johnson feels. And that's not how an awful lot of other people feel, mm-hmm. including a lot of police officers. So, you know, you need a you need someone who's committed to change. Interesting contrast is offered in New York City. Uh, I don't know if you follow these things. Uh, there's been a couple articles that have emerged in the New York Times covering uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, and his relationship with the former police chief, whose name I can't remember at the moment, who just stepped down or announced that she's stepping down. Uh, and she was one of Eric Adams' first appointees. They were very close. Uh, the, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, just so you know, folks, is a former police officer, and he ran highlighting very much highlighting that he's a black man he also said i i know what it's like uh to be unfairly treated by the police as a black man and i also know what it's like to be a police officer uh in high crime areas and so i can bridge that divide if you will uh he appointed uh, to be the police chief of new york city a woman uh, who just now she was stepping down uh, and the complaint is that eric adams is micromanaging the hell out of that police department as he prevented her from naming who she wanted to very uh, high-ranking officials that are in the police department that you would think a police chief would have the freedom to uh control yeah. uh, your thoughts on should mayor johnson accept a eric adams type role of micromanaging the police department no i don't think so uh it's her name was Keyshant sewell and she was first uh, female police chief in New York, I think, 
um, African-American woman, very, very impressive uh, and had a lot of the essential qualities of a good of a big city police chief, including great communication skills um, uh, and at the same time, real respect, I think, from uh, from the rank and file. But she also had the unfortunate experience of having a mayor who was a cop, was a top cop. He was a captain, which is, I think, the equivalent of a commander here in Chicago. Um, you know, a district commander, I think. Um, no, I don't think you, you should micromanage. And I think you just have to be really clear about what you're, uh, about the strategies, because the police chief and the mayor have to be on the same page. And uh, and like I said, the, Brandon Johnson was elected on a few commitments and um, the police chief needs to understand what those commitments are and, you know, make them work. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't think he should be micromanaged. Uh, I think that there ought to be a straightforward way for City Hall to keep abreast of what's going on in the police department and to have clear expectations. But same thing with the school chief, you know, give the guy clear expectations and let him or her move. In, in, in your opinion, did uh, Mayors Daly, uh, Rahm, these are the mayors you know, uh, and Lightfoot uh, micromanage the police department? I think that, you know, probably. I, I mean, again, I, I didn't serve with, in Lori's administration or in Rahm's. Um, uh, I should say Mayor Emanuel's or Mayor Lightfoot's. But uh, my guess is uh, they probably did. Um, and, you know, they may have felt they needed to, you know. I mean, after the Laquan McDonald incident, you know, Mayor Manuel was clearly under huge, huge pressure. Uh, and, um, and Mayor Lightfoot was explicitly elected on a promise to drive reform in that department, which, which, uh, which struggled under her. Uh, I, I know that the Mayor Daly met with the police leadership, and I know he announced big things like community policing. But I, I believe that Daly actually was an excellent manager who, who, you know, who outlined his expectations and you know didn't interfere. I, I, I really believe that's the way he operated. I, you know, um, uh, but I, I can't tell you every. Car I was not in meetings between him and the police chiefs. I can't really tell you that. I remember a conversation with you from many, many years ago, and I think the statute of limitations on uh, what is uh, just a friendly off the record conversation has expired because this is so many years ago. We had this conversation, which you, you probably have forgotten it. The reason I remember our conversation so well, Peter, you're the pretty much, as I always say, the only daily person I ever talked to that would talk to me openly, except for one of his budget chiefs got I'm not going to mention this poor gentleman's name. Was that Paul Vallis? Your friend Paul Vallis? <laughs> no, Vallis. That wasn't who. That wasn't who talked to you. No. He talked to everybody. He must have talked to you. No, he talked to me. He didn't like what I wrote and said he's never going to talk to me again. That yeah. ended that. Okay, he didn't like what I wrote. Oh, yeah. Uh, now this is a different guy uh, who who wanted to meet me. He goes, I need to. Meet, <laughs> I need to see in person what this guy looks like, who is so obsessed with tiffs. That's what he said to me. He goes, nobody else in the city cares about this thing. I just need to see what you look like. And anyway, it began a long and beautiful relationship. All right. So, um, but you told me this. You said that, uh, Ben, you think that Mayor Daly is this all-powerful mayor, but he's actually a little afraid and intimidated by the police. 
it was Peter Cunningham, like in the nineties, vintage Peter Cunningham. Uh, and uh, do you still, do you still believe that? Uh, I don't know if I, I certainly don't recall using that phrase intimidated by them, but I think he recognized the limits of uh, a mayor's power in, in winning the hearts and minds of a big paramilitary organization like the Chicago police department. You know, I think he, he knew that if he mishandled some situations that, you know, they'll, and you saw this happen in New York where they turned their backs on him. I think it happened in Chicago, right? And they turned their backs on mayor Lightfoot and she showed up at a hospital where police had, where Ella French and maybe had been shot or somebody had been shot. Um, you know, and, and, you know, obviously they have a strong union that protects them and a strong union that is willing to say anything to stoke, you know, conflict. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of that coming out of the FOP. So I think he, I, I think he, he really understood. And, you know, God knows he, he had a unique experience as the son of Richard J and somebody who spent his life in this, in this field. I mean, and obviously served for 22 years. I mean, he just had, he just has so much knowledge and experience to draw on about how cities really work and how politics works and how power really works. And I think he knew that, um, that, that you know, unions, you know, if, if you escalate in the wrong way with unions, you're going to have problems. You know, he had 25 years of labor peace. He had, you know, after seven, nine strikes in 17 years in the teachers union, nine teacher strikes between 1970 and 1987, we had no teacher strikes during Daly's entire 22 years. And the first one was in 2012 after um, Mayor Emanuel was elected. So a lot of critics say he bought labor peace. You know, I know his uh, labor lawyer very well. I know who was his labor liaison in the, in the office very well. They worked really, really hard to understand where the unions were coming from. And frankly, to give them, you know, what they needed for their politics. You know, they they had their own politics to deal with and, you know, whether it was steady raises, that kind of thing. So I would say intimidated by the police. No, but I would say that he recognized that mayors do not have unlimited power over a big paramilitary organization like a police department. Yeah. Uh, I Again, I do not want to go down the path and, and relitigate this stuff, but I have to push back on uh, your summation of Daly's uh, relation to the union. Uh, the evolution of the Chicago Teachers Union to where it got to the point where the great Karen Lewis, may she rest in peace, was elected president was a long time coming. And part of it was precipitated on really opposition and disappointment with the positions of the union leaders vis-a-vis their connections and relationships with Daly, starting with Tom Reese in the 90s, with his negotiations with Paul Vallis, uh, who was running CPS in those days on behalf of Daly. And then uh, Paul, uh, Tom Reese gave way to Deborah Lynch, uh, who then had to negotiate with Arnie, uh, your, your boss. And then she gave way to Marilyn Stewart. And in each case, the teachers felt they had been betrayed by their union. So I don't think it was a, a great uh, astute stewardship, but that's but the bottom line is they didn't have a strike, though. Twenty five years. And then you- yeah, they didn't have a strike in 1999 because, well, the, the ratif- we don't even know if they won the ratification vote. 
Let's all right. Let's not revisit that well, one. You sound like be, Donald Trump now. What do you think? <laughs> the election was stolen. Is that what no? You're to say? I don't know. I don't know. We'll never know. They didn't uh, release. The, I remember George Schmidt. May he rest in peace. Writing one article after another. You're right. I'm heading into Trump country, and let me <laughs> save myself from going any further down there. But uh, it was not a. a as rosy as some might, people might. Think. I understand right. that. I understand that. I, I, um, there were there were challenges, but there's always challenges. My point is, is that, you know, we worked through them. You know, we passed contracts. We, yeah. we and 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 they were pretty generous, relatively speaking. Yeah, because they took the pension money and spent. <laughs> All right. Let's not go down there. All right. Let's just move on and not relitigate the '90s. I spent many many uh hours writing articles criticizing daily and peter was writing speeches for daily and just put it this way daily won every election so you could say peter won and ben lost all right let's talk about small d democracy in the chicago city council this was uh, an item that you sent me in that email that i'd love to get your thoughts on and we've talked a lot about it in the show it's kind of in the rearview mirror but in his first meeting as mayor of city of chicago brandon johnson uh, helped usher in a uh, realignment of the council chairs I took great delight in all uh, the uh, maneuvers on this this front. We talked a lot about this on the show. Uh, I think it's critical to a certain degree that the city council exercise more latitude in his relationship with the mayor if we're going to have a functioning democracy. Your general thoughts on whether the mayor should be the one who determines the chairs of city council committees, whether the aldermen should be the ones, or your thoughts. Go ahead. Uh, I'm very, very intrigued by um, former Inspector General Joe Ferguson's work to, you know, stimulate a dialogue around the need for city charter and to educate everybody to the fact that we operate by tradition, not really by design uh, and not really by, um, you know, by best practices as you're looking uh, as you're looking um uh, around the country. I mean, uh, in New York, the mayor doesn't run the city council and the mayor doesn't pick the the uh, committee chairs. The mayor doesn't, uh, and, and the same thing in LA. And Joe would have all the information about other places. So I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, they tried to do that. Uh, I thought it was poorly executed. Like they tried to do it in the interregnum, like, you know, right after Brandon was elected, but before uh, Mayor Life would have stepped down. I think Scott Wagaspak kind of. No, it's before the election. Just so you interrupt. It, the, it, oh, I got to know it by heart. Uh, okay. Like, All right. So, if, okay. If it was it, it before was the election. Bef- so they, wasn't it after the, um, well, it was at least after February? Yeah. It, okay. Time out. It was in, uh, the, at the end of March. And it was, the runoff was about a week or so away between uh, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Uh, and aldermen, some who were loyal to Johnson and some who uh, were loyal to Vallis or supporting Vallis and Johnson, yeah. uh, joined together uh, mm-hmm. to determine who would be the chairs, knowing full well that the and he, just walked, and he just walked in and swatted it right down. Yes. Yeah. And we know uh, Vallis would have done the same thing. So let's not get yep. ourselves, but go ahead. Right, right. So, you know, so right away, he basically said, not on, you know, I just got here. And the first thing you want to do is weaken me. Nah, I'm not going to go for that. So, you know, I, again, I don't think it was well executed. It wasn't a, uh, a savvy display of, of, of uh, leadership, but you know, here we are. I'm I'm all for having a more empowered council. I just think power should be distributed, uh, which may sound like it's in conflict with my opposition to the elected school board. My problem with that is 
has other reasons. But either way, I think that I think that, um, you know, the city council should be a more active branch of government with some of the some of the um, capabilities that uh, uh, Ferguson's been talking about, you know, let them have an independent analyst on the budget, let them, uh, you know, manage the manage, uh, you know, their views on the budget rather than simply, you know, kind of taking the mayor's and just going with that. Um, you know, let's have a robust debate. I mean, it's, that's what we're supposed to have. Yeah. I actually enjoyed what they try to do in March. I'll push back on that one. I got a big kick out of it. I tipped my hat to them. I knew it wouldn't last. I knew it would be undone as soon as they did it, as soon as the election was over. Uh, both, either candidate would not be, would not want Scott Waggis back as finance chair. So, so it was a little bit of interesting theater from your standpoint. Yes, it was interesting theater. little political theater that's kind of fun. but It was fun political theater that illuminated a bigger issue. Yeah. So because they did that, I think more people focused on this bizarre tradition we have in the city of Chicago, where the mayor determines who will chair city. As a result of that theater, we spent a little more time addressing it. So I think overall it was a plus. Uh, I have to ask you what I call the Mark Sims question. And I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this question. Uh, Mark Sims podcaster comes on the show. You've been on his show. Yeah. uh, and, And he quotes you all the time. Uh, and so, Mark, this is for you. I think it was either on when you came on his show or you came on my show, you you were talking about your study of murders in Chicago. It's kind of a gruesome topic, uh, but you had taken a deep dive and you talked about how historically it goes. There's it, there's really horrific years and then it drops. And that what really analysts, serious analysts should do is try to figure out what was going on in the years that it dropped uh, that led to the drop or maybe contributed to the drop so that we can pursue those policies. Okay, Uh, and um, I think I'm doing this off the top of my head that the range is in the 400s. Like 400 Correct. people murdered in the city of Chicago. Uh, and then the, over the last couple of years, I think it, w- it reached 800 yep. uh, in 2020. In the, in the 90s, as you've pointed out, it's been over 900. So this is a pattern that's happened down yep. through history. Um, where's your sense of where we're going right now uh, in 2023? Do you think we're going to approach that 400 territory or are we going to stay closer to 800 you're just general uh, sense of things i think that um it's definitely possible that we could uh we could dramatically reduce gun violence and i'll tell you why there's a couple of things but one thing the entire city is focused on it now in ways that it never has been you know the philanthropic community has been funding violence prevention now for about seven or eight years the business community is finally stepping up and getting involved, the civic committee made an announcement. And I should say that I do some work for them also. So I, I should be open about that. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, you know, the public absolutely wants it, you know, to the extent that the sort of, you know, defund movement kind of fizzled out. Um, Brandon Johnson himself, the mayor, uh, uh, moved away from that position very explicitly during the campaign. And uh, so I think that, you know, there's an appetite for more police. There's an appetite for business to get much more involved. 
there's uh, the, the ongoing commitment. And we had built an, a, um, a friend of mine likes to use the phrase architecture in this violence prevention community that didn't exist seven or eight years ago. It has existed in the past to a small degree, like ceasefire organizations like that. But we now have about 20 to 30 to 40 organizations doing violence prevention, serving 30 plus neighborhoods of the city. Uh, we have more data than we've ever had. We're deeply, deeply engaged in analyzing every shooting, who's involved. We know all, we know the 600 street factions. We know exactly their territories. We know more information about this than we've ever had before. So I think it's possible. The facts are we have not been under 400 homicides in a year since 1965, but we got pretty close in the 2010s. We got down to, I think 415 was the lowest. And you're right, we were high in the 90s, we were high in the 70s, over 900 in both of those eras. Uh, and we got to 800, I think in 21, 2021. And then we were closer to 722. We're now down for this year, but we're only down about 8%. So, and we've had some rough, rough weekends this summer, mm. including last weekend was just devastating. So, you know, we're watching this every single day uh, when, when, when violence does break out, we often know exactly who's involved. Um, we know exactly who to go to, but we're trying in, in the neighborhoods where, where we're active, we know who to go to, to ask them not to retaliate. We, you know, we may in fact have direct relationships with them because we're hiring guys who were involved with those organizations, street factions. I like to use that phrase rather than gangs. Um, uh, so that's work that just didn't exist 20 years ago in Chicago. They didn't, you know, you didn't have those relationships. You certainly didn't have them in many places, but we're still not even close to its scale. We think we're serving 15 to 20% of the highest risk guys in the city. And, you know, we'd like to serve 50 to 75%, see if we can really dramatically change that. And everybody's aligned around that goal. Now the business communities embrace that goal. The philanthropic communities embrace that goal. Uh, Mayor Johnson hasn't explicitly embraced that goal, but he's definitely embraced that strategy. Yeah, no, to that point, I want to give a shout out. Rich Miller wrote a column that I read it this Sunday in the Sun-Times about the Civic uh, Committee. I, I'm like, they're, they sound a liberal. And this is the outfit that usually is uh, fiscal conservatives, uh, if it's if they're going to even address the issue of criminal justice, it's hire more police. Uh, they don't. I don't know if they've ever said lock them up, but they come pretty close. But now, man, I read that article by Rich Miller again. Shout out Rich Miller, and uh, they're like coming closer to where Brandon Johnson is. So I took that as an encouraging sign. Yeah, and they that was based on you know six or seven months of fact finding. They talked to everybody under the sun uh, about it from, you know, the sheriff to the state's attorney, to the attorney general, probably to the governor too, um, to the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot. Um, they've talked to Mayor Johnson. So they've talked to everybody. And based on that, those conversations, that's where they land. They want to invest in CVI. They want to continue to reform the police department. They're not opposed to hiring more police, but they think that effectiveness, helping the department become more effective is more important than just you know, uh, refilling the vacancies, but they are a hundred percent in favor of, you know, supporting the police in every way. All right, let's close down with the bear question. Every, uh, every guest in the show uh, who's local anyway, gets the bear question. Uh, do you want care if the bears leave Chicago for Arlington Heights? The bears are 
that's probably the front runner, as we all know. Uh, and uh, are you willing to see tax dollars uh, allocated to keep the Bears uh, in Chicago? Peter Cunningham. You know, I think it'll be heartbreaking to see our pro football team leave the city. I think it'll be um, a big kind of psychological blow. So I'd be willing to use some tax dollars. I just wouldn't be willing to do use a lot of them. You know, it feels like yesterday that we built the stadium at Soldier Field to me. Yeah, it's, well, it's 20 years ago or something. Yeah. Um, well, maybe 25. But either way, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, they ought to just, they shouldn't even be talking about Arlington Heights. They should just be talking about, you know, making some more improvements to Soldier Field. That's what they should do. And, if, and there'll be a cost, and the Park District owns it. And the Bears feel like they're at a disadvantage because they don't make as much money on the, you know, parking or whatever as, as they would if they owned their stadium outright. But, you know, it, it, it's a bit like you started out saying how everybody says it's, it's all about politics. Well, the other one that's like that is it's all about money, right? Like Yogi Berra's old line that, you know, baseball is is, is 50% sports and 90% business, you know? <laughs> Uh, you know, and it's all about money. I mean, is, yeah. is the Bears really in financial trouble? I don't know. I, no, I don't think I so. answer that question for you. you know, uh, and so do, do they do we have to I, I don't want to spend a lot of taxpayer money to help them get a lot richer, but I'd be willing to spend some taxpayer money to keep them in Chicago and keep, you know, just because I think it'd be good for the city. I'm, I'm not a big football fan. I, I actually went to one game last year. Uh, the one on Christmas Eve, it was eight degrees. And uh, a friend gave me two tickets and said, go. So I went, my son and I went. It was unbelievable. Uh, I also point out one more time uh, that Peter Cunningham is not a native of Chicago. He comes from New York City. His beloved Jets and Giants, uh, that's who he roots for mainly, uh, do not play in New York City, even though they're the New York Jets and the New York Giants. They actually play in New Jersey. Uh, so it's not as though this has never happened before. Just want to point Correct. that out, Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, do you notice how he didn't argue with me when I said his beloved New York Giants? The man is lifelong. He's a bit as lifelong a Giant fan as Paul Vallis has been a Democrat. Uh, I, uh, I'm going to do two bits of promotion. One is uh, about the Bear Stadium. I'm going to have Maria, uh, Marie Collins right on next week. I'm, I'm pursuing it. I'm very fascinated by the possibility of the Bears going to the old Southwark site on the south side of Chicago. Uh, you know, I just want to point out to Chicago Bears, hey, there's the south side of Chicago. Why don't you think about it? Uh, and uh, she'll be on. I also want to do some promotion uh, that I should have done at the outset, so I apologize, uh, Peter Cunningham. Peter is a rock and roll star, great guitar player, does cover songs, and he writes his own songs, and your band will be performing when and where. It will be performing on Friday, July 14th, 9 o'clock at the Hungry Brain, which is on Belmont, just east of Western Avenue, 2319 West Belmont, 9 o'clock. Friday, July 14th. Be there. You will definitely have a good time. Yes, and he promises to play some Neil Young songs, and he fervent believes that Neil Young was correct in Southern Man, and he's vehemently opposed to the political positions of Leonard Skinner uh, in Sweet Home Alabama. Do I have that accurate, Peter? 
Uh, you know, I, I'm glad they dropped the Confederate flag. I'll say that much. Yeah, the Confederate flag, man. Come on. Like, I just saw their video. I was I'm like, are you kidding me? And then the, the Watergate lyrics. See, everybody forgets the Watergate lyric in that song. You want to hear a rant? Peter Cock give you a rant. The Watergate lyric in the song where they're defending Nixon. Hello, Leonard. I guess I should let it go, Peter. It was only how many? 50 years ago. Let it go, Ben. Let it go, Ben. Ben. Good advice. Peter, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, rock and roll on July 14th, all right? Okay. Thanks, Ben. See ya. All right. That's great, Peter Cunningham. Also want to thank producer Chris. has done an outstanding job as always. And I think Peter will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, if you're looking for more Ben Jarofsky content, all you have to do is head on over to chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.